When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm John Ridley. I'm the founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline.com. And this is our podcast, Doc Talk, where each week, Matt, you and I, we dig into the critical content being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers, industry leaders, documentaries that are powerful, um, they're incredibly timely, and they have stories that really, really go there. Uh, I I think it would be fair to say we had a conversation like that last week, and we're having another one uh, just like it this week. Yes, we spoke last week with Don Porta, the director of a documentary series about the U.S. Supreme Court deadlocked. And we really want to continue the conversation about the Supreme Court. Needless to say, it's an incredibly important institution, but there's a really compelling investigative documentary from Frontline that looks yeah. at Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas. And that's the subject of our episode this week. Yeah, I was thinking about, when we were talking about this episode, and I was thinking about this, and I really was not trying to intentionally be controversial, but when you think about people of color in politics, black men in politics who are synonymous with politics and political change, um, very few names. Martin Luther King really jumps out at you. Um, and Clarence Thomas, um, particularly over the last 30 years. And the film, Clarence and Ginny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court, looks at Clarence Thomas and really dives deeply into his personal life, the, the events that shaped him, but, but as well, um, his wife, Ginny Thomas, and these two have become a literal power couple in Washington, D.C. This is our conversation with the director of the film, Michael Kirk. Michael, welcome to the program, and congratulations on this documentary. It's, um, I, I think, one of the highest praises that I that I can give it is that I think it will confound people on the left and the right, uh, people who think they know and either support or, or detractors of Clarence Thomas equally. So let's start with him, and I definitely do want to talk about his, his wife, their relationship, and how they've become a Washington power couple. But if you can start with Clarence Thomas and his background, something that is is familiar to me, it reminds me of my father's background and stories that he told me, but ended up going in, in different directions and different choices um, than people that I know have made. But but based on things that have happened and pains that I've had and, and, and words that have been spoken to me that that are so relevant and so so much part of the lived experience that I and my family and people that I grew up with really know. Yes, it's, uh, I mean, we all we all had the same thoughts about Clarence Thomas uh, when we started the film. It was like, who is this guy? Where's he actually coming from? What's that all about? We knew that he was against affirmative action a lot of the time in his life. How does that happen? That was the fundamental origin story question. Right. How does that happen? This social policy that everybody 
who's white that I talked to believes has been a wonderful innovation, affirmative action. How can Clarence Thomas be a paragon of the uh, other side of that? In order to do that, you had to go home, back to where he started, back to how he grew up. It's almost like a cliche childhood in some way. It's like if you were writing a movie and you were sitting in some house that the Hollywood studio had rented for you to write a movie and on Malibu in Malibu, you'd say, well, he starts out in a little village called Pinpoint, Georgia, right. where, you know, the racial divisions are unbelievable and we can get at it that way. And then the climb will just be amazing. And But it actually does start that way. It actually is that story. And it actually is about the little kid who's very black. Yeah who's very nappy-headed, <laughs> very, very broad-nosed, as he, this is all self-description by him uh, in his book, very poor, without a dad, very young mom, tyrant for a grandfather, and, uh, and the racial environment of Savannah, Georgia, during the 1950s. Imagine, imagine that life. And as soon as I started to hear about that from his friends, from other kids that grew up with him, when I heard about the brown bag test, right. when I heard about all these things that were part of being a young black kid growing up in that world. And talk about that for for a second, the brown bag test, because one of the things that I think is really powerful about your documentary is that, you know, Clarence Thomas got it from all sides. Right. And I think sometimes white folks don't quite understand that, you know, we're, we're not monolithic as, as black folks. We have a shared experience. We have a shared life. But there are these brown bag tests. There are, you know, the, the stories about, you know, did, did your family come from the field or did your family come from the house, whether you're lighter or darker right? and what that means. So I think, you know, people will see, and one of the things I appreciate about the documentary, they go, oh, okay, he got it because he was a, a young black man who wanted to get ahead and we'll get into this as he goes to a seminary school, as he goes to um, Ivy League schools and yeah. feels otherwise. Exactly. You see the footage in the film of, of Savannah in the 50s and it's, you know, all the usual signs. Uh, no colored, da-da-da-da-da. So he's growing up in that world, to be sure. And I guess everybody would expect that. But the, the revelation of what his, what his actual life was like inside, as you suggest, the, the world of his friends who say that it really hurt him yeah. uh, to be blacker than they were. The brown bag test was a test that was applied when a grocery bag, if you were lighter than the grocery bag, you had a status and a, and a place in the caste system that was higher, much higher than Clarence, way down inside he felt that and even writes about it in his own autobiography of the pain and and what that meant to be in that position the the trauma of it uh, this is before he even gets moved into his grandfather's house and the way the other kids made fun of him um, for his color the other black kids made fun of him yeah. for his color that's trauma number one i think Forget poverty. That kind of comes with the territory, I guess. Forget no dad. That comes with that territory. A lot of kids that way. But uh, as they said, uh, Clarence was the lowest of the low. And and so he he grows up, and you talk about his grandfather. You know, his grandfather, uh, his father was not in, in the picture. 
unfortunate in any circumstance, unfortunate when it happens in the black community. He ended up growing up with his his grandfather, he and his, his brother. His mother had very little money. His grandfather did pretty well. But his grandfather was a very devout Catholic, yep. sent Clarence to Holy Cross to learn. He gets sent to Catholic school where he kind of likes it because for the first time ever, he's being nurtured by somebody, and it's the Catholic school white nuns. And what did they call the white nuns in Savannah, Georgia? The N-word nuns, right? Mm. Uh, They, too, were suspect in Savannah, but they loved him, and they saw something in this boy. They thought they were fixing him, one especially. And it was the first time anybody had been really nice to Clarence. His mom, out of just desperation, drops him in with his grandfather. And his grandfather is a monster Mm. and uh, tells people as he becomes an adult how terrible life is living in a closet for long periods of time, always being abused, always being yelled at, physically abused, mentally, emotionally scarred, decides that people in the town and the nuns decide Clarence has the makings of a priest. So the nuns start telling all the other kids, act like Clarence, look like Clarence, be like Clarence. Clarence, don't make fun of him. Clarence is going to be the first priest from Savannah, the first black priest from Savannah. And he carries that with him off to the seminary where he looks around and he's the only black kid among a bunch of Southern white boys who want to be priests. And the stories that come out beyond just what they say to him the heartbreak of it to him, it all comes to fruition when Martin Luther King is murdered. And that day he hears the other white kids, one in particular, mocking. Good, they say. Good. And that's it for Clarence. He wants to go home. He's not going to be Father Thomas anymore. He's going to figure something else out. And he goes home and his grandfather sends him out into the world, says, get out of here. You're on your own. Find your own way. And a priest is scouring the South looking for black kids to go to Holy Cross College up in Massachusetts, a liberal Catholic school up in Massachusetts. And Clarence gets a, gets a ride, and so do some of his friends. The friends we talked to who knew him when he was a little kid, many of those friends also got the trip up to Massachusetts, Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, uh, to be the first among the first of black kids from the South going to a liberal white college in Massachusetts. Remarkable story. And it's, you just can't help but really pull at your heartstrings, uh, as it should, as his politics mature. Um, he goes in interesting directions there. But but as you explore in your film, he has a period that might be called radicalism, hmm. Uh, which is surprising given where he is wound up. But there's a a pretty long arc there to um, the evolution of him from the left going to the, what some would say would be the extreme right. He's, uh, I was, my mind was blown when I, when I, when I heard that his hero is Malcolm X, that the poster in his in his dorm room is that famous poster of Malcolm that, Everybody saw, if you're a certain age, in certain dorm rooms in certain places and and parts of New York City and other places, uh, he memorizes Malcolm X's speeches. What's Malcolm X stand for? A kind of separatism, right? 
the kind of don't don't just don't just teach us to be white people. Let us have our own world, our own thoughts. And Clarence was a very big believer in this. Hated the idea of intermarriage. Despised and used to mock that if he saw a black guy walking with a white woman, a black woman walking with a white man on campus, he he was known to say very derisive things about it. Not surprising, it's the 60s, man. <laughs> who's, who's not doing that? Who's not doing that in the 60s, right? And Clarence Thomas was right in the middle of all of that. You talked at the at the at the head of the film, and you said, you know, this is a story. You could, you could see a Hollywood writer sitting down writing this story because every beat said, "Classic hero's journey." This is where I start from. This is my adversity. This is who I become. This is how I prevail in the end. One of the things I don't say this in a flippant manner, but what's incredible by the time Clarence Thomas gets to college or, or postgraduate study, he ends up at Yale. Correct. In your story, where you see the the John Bolton's, the Bill and Hillary's, those who come out of Ivy League or upper-tier education, and something is going to happen for them. Again, this gets to dynamics of race, or at least perceptions. But Clarence didn't necessarily feel that same way once he got his degree and did a little thing, this little act of personal, I don't know, what do you call it, personal protest or a reminder, um, Two things, one with letters that he got back where he didn't get jobs, and one with the diploma himself. I'd love to talk about that, and I'd love to come in afterwards and just talk about just a little bit, personal experience. Again, really saying this isn't unique what Clarence Thomas went through. It, it's unfortunately very much a part of the other, our otherwise existence. But talk about his reaction to being in Yale, getting a degree, and not feeling like it was equivalent the way it may have been for John Bolton, the way it may have been for Bill and Hillary. All of his friends that we we talked to at the beginning of the film, they were growing up when he was, you know, America's blackish child. They all go to college together. They also go to law school and every place else. But they say, Clarence, Clarence has the golden ticket. Hmm. Clarence has a Yale law degree, man. Clarence has his eye on the prize and the prize is Wall Street. And he's going to go there and he's going to do it all. And, uh, and he's, he's pretty good in school. He never talks in class. We talked to people like Bolton and others who were in the class. Hillary's in the class. She's the smartest woman in the room. Robert Reich is in the class. Wow. He's the second smartest guy in the room. Uh, you know, Bill is, is sleeping with everybody you can and also the smartest guy in the damn room. And, uh, and Clarence Thomas is sitting back in the room. And, and as somebody said to us, never said a word. Never said a word, wore overalls to class to distinguish himself. I'm just a poor guy off the fields, up from the South, right? Doing what I can. That Clarence Thomas does not get a single offer from a major financial firm, not anywhere, not any place. And man, is he heartbroken. Man, does he think this is, there's something wrong in the world. Mm. Now, I get this. I get this scholarship, but they don't really want me. Maybe I'm too black. Here's that story again. Maybe the right. early traumas are right. My grandfather said I was a loser. Maybe I am a loser. And Clarence Thomas, uh, depressed and sad, looks, one, for a political ideology that may accommodate him. But what he's really looking for, you guys, is, as somebody tells me, the shortest line to the top. And the shortest line is a black guy in the Reagan administration. The lure of politics uh, as maybe a way out of uh, out of his uh, failure to not get a job, to not go for the brass ring in New York, uh, and that's and that's how he gets 
to Washington, and it's how he becomes a conservative, thanks to his friend John Bolton, where they shared this house together, and, and he, Clarence, had taken over the basement to do his homework, and Bolton would come down there to do his laundry, and they talk politics. <laughs> and if, you're, if your tutor on American politics is John Bolton when you're in law school, you can just imagine, huh? One of the, the, the charges that have been laid against Clarence Thomas, if you will, is that he's basically giving political cover to the right by virtue of his race, and that he's a, an opportunist. And sees, as you say, that he could get to the more or less of the front of the line by adopting a you know a conservative mantra, covering himself in that that mantle. He saw a way to he saw a way to the top. But what, what's wrong with that? I mean, he saw a way to the top. He'd had a really, really, really crappy life. You know, who gets dealt a grandfather like that? Or being in a seminary with all these white guys mocking you and you know whatever? Who who gets dealt that life? And, uh, and he saw a way in, and, and the way and the way in was not with black folks. He had, for whatever set of reasons, he hadn't had much luck there. So, wh- how? What's the door? The door is rich white conservative people, and you know the as as we, 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 I'm surely we will get to what the ultimate manifestation of that is for him. But even then, he knew. Here I go. This is this is my ticket to ride. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, we can't talk about Clarence Thomas without getting to, obviously, Anita Hill. Yeah. To get there, Clarence Thomas for a while is at the EEOC. He's put in place there. It's about equal opportunity. But he's going through a difficult time of life, at least up until he meets Jenny Thomas. His marriage is broken up. He's not doing well. He's, he's self-medicating. Not in a good place. But even at the EEOC, a lot of what people would... If they don't know the entire history of Clarence Thomas, they start to understand what they, what we come to believe about Clarence Thomas and his demeanor. This shows up in the EEOC or when he's he's there. How many people recollect how he was as a leader? I think it's very interesting in your film he talks about, and this is a reaction, again, I'm very familiar with, how you um, maybe self-deprecate before other people get a chance to. That takes us obviously through, you know, up to the point where Thurgood Marshall is replaced on the Supreme Court. So sort of set the table that would take us to the Supreme Court and where most people first learned about Clarence Thomas in the most severe way. He's at the EEOC, Equal Opportunity Commission, right? Inside the Reagan administration, you're, you know, you're the steward. You're supposed to take care of your community and others. Sexual harassment was not really a phrase in those times, but he was, there he was. A lot of black people work there. A, a couple of them have trouble with him. If they feel like he's kowtowing to white people. He's the first one to, to denigrate black people in a group of white people. Somebody in the film says they think it's because, and, and I do too, I think, 
before they made fun of him, he was going to make fun of somebody else so the white people would leave him alone. And the reason he, he's, he wants to appeal to white people, powerful white people, is he's maneuvering because in 1981, in 1981, somebody tells us, he says to them, there's a spot for me on the United States Supreme Court. Mm. I've got a Yale law degree, which I pull out the the degree that has the 10 cent sticker on it, but maybe it's just enough to get me on the United States Supreme Court. The temerity of it. I mean, just forget everything else, that this guy would have that ambition and, and decide to maneuver using his strongest asset, which was, I am black. He's also smart, by the way, and very talented. Yeah. And, you know, we said that all the things you would expect him to be, Yale Law School graduate, did very well in college. But in order to get there, he's got to do some He's got to do some finagling with the white folks. And part of that, according to people who worked around him and watched him operate, in order to do that, he has to appeal to the white people and 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 make sure they understand that he's not a threat. Mm. This is not a guy walking around with causes on his shoulder. This is an example to we Republicans of what happens when when we when you can enfranchise and move up a capable black person perhaps the most important Supreme Court justice in a century, decides to retire, Thurgood Marshall. And George H.W. Bush is the president, so is there a bigger wasp anywhere? And what, are the, uh, and, and what do the wasps do when there's a vacancy of the black Supreme Court justice? You find another black Supreme Court justice. And uh, Clarence had made himself known and was visible. They'd moved him into a kind of triple-A baseball place, the the D.C. Circuit, Appeals Court Circuit, he could say, I've been a judge. And that and that's what brings Clarence Thomas to the hearings. Everybody's applauding. He's been manicured and manufactured by the Bush administration to not say anything controversial. He feels stupid doing it. All of his friends say he feels like an idiot. He's saying, I don't have an opinion about that. I can't talk about that. I don't really want to say what I think about abortion. Joe Biden, by the way, is running the committee. Right. Uh, and Joe Biden wants to get the black guy on the Supreme Court and get this over with. He's already blown his own chance to run for president. Biden has fallen on his face for cheating scandals and a couple of other things. He's running this hearing. A lot of people on the left, a lot of women's groups, everybody is fighting about the future of Roe v. Wade and all the things that are percolating. They don't want to see Clarence Thomas get on. All the white guys do. All the white senators do. Kennedy, all of them. Okay, let's give him the black guy. Let's go. And in comes Anita Hill and makes the big allegations about sexual harassment, a phrase nobody'd really heard of or even really thought about. And boy, did they dump on him. And the story of him coming back on national television in the room that the Watergate hearings were held, even though Biden doesn't want the story to be told, other white senators don't want the story to be told, the story is being told. And Clarence Thomas is in the fetal position at home. His sponsor, Jack Danforth, Senator Jack Danforth, goes out to the House and tells us that he comes in the House and there's Clarence Thomas literally sobbing in the bedroom and a true believer in the idea that this is This is the white world coming back to get him. One more time, the battle inside the black world for do we support him? Black women are not so much in favor of him now that Anita's out, but black men, we got to get one of us on there, get him on the court, Mm. look the other way. 
it's a huge trauma inside the black community that's paying attention to this and the white community that just wants to shove it under the table and get it over with. The, the thing for me that is so powerful about all of that story, you talk about George H.W. Bush standing there literally saying, oh, this is not affirmative action. We're losing a black Supreme Court justice. The next person up just happens to be in the you know, a century and so much of uh, the Supreme Court, just happens to be a black guy. And literally saying it with a straight face. Most qualified um, person Most available. qualified person just happens to be a black person. Never ever had another one on the court, but we have this individual. The, the allegation comes down, and when he comes back into that room and says, this is a high-tech lynching, this I remember hearing and remember seeing these all-white male senators who could say nothing at that point, whether they agreed, disagreed, whether they want to move on or not. That word, that phrase, that high-tech lynching, coming into it with that fight and saying that. One of the things that, to me, with your film, because Anita Hill is so much a part of this story, cannot be separated from this story, there's very little Anita Hill in this story. And I, I just as a, as a filmmaker and a storyteller myself, I was like, okay, how are you going to handle this? Right. Because, as you say, back in the day, there's just phraseology of sexual harassment. It's like, oh, what is that? Yeah. Versus now where we know, you know, if, if, if we didn't know or ignored or wouldn't accept what women went through, we can't ignore or, or, or say we don't know or, or not accept what women went through. In your very story, you talk about what Jenny Thomas had gone through, somebody that he cares about, who, who should have at least understood it. There's not much of her there. And I was like, okay, well, this, this dude's telling his story. He's going to tell it the way he, he does. But you do something that then is very powerful. And you talk about some of the chapters that you have in your film, you know, one that was ABC, Meet Cute, and things like that. You have a chapter which is The Other Woman. And you bring in, and I believe, and you mentioned her before, one of Clarence Thomas's either former girlfriends or someone who worked around him, worked at the EEOC, briefly but succinctly and very powerfully, she essentially corroborates Anita Hill's story. The fact that, and as you say, you know, this was Joe Biden. This was Ted Kennedy. Clarence Thomas had pretty much sailed through the early parts of, of his nomination process. This wasn't going in day one. There are two narratives out there. He'd kind of gotten through it. And then the Anita Hill story comes up. People are like, we don't want to deal. We don't want to deal. High-tech lynching. We can't deal. Our whiteness is being shown. There was another individual who was never called up. Talk about her. Talk about her story. Almost for me as a filmmaker, when she's talking, there's negative space. It's her voice. There's dead silence. She's on camera. She's talking and it's, oh my God, had, if, had we heard this back in the day, maybe it'd still be on the court. But the, the profoundness of what she says in that quiet space, it's like, oh my God, okay, there's more here. That's the gravity of it all, isn't it? That's where it really all is. Uh, there were there were a few women who had you know talked to the FBI, who had given depositions, who were ready to go, and one in particular, they wanted to talk. Some of them were waiting in hotels. They'd flown them in, and they were waiting at hotels to come over to the the hearing room and talk and testify. Once high tech lynching gets uttered. Uh, uh, Joe Biden, still with presidential aspirations even all those years ago, all, all of the white senators, everybody watching it on television, everybody said, oh, my God, this is just too much, right? And Biden makes the decision, let's get this over with. We're in his committee and everybody else. And 
they all have reasons. You talk to them all now, and they all have reasons why they didn't do it, but they didn't do it. They didn't hear from them. They didn't roll the women out. And and what they say is the classic thing. How many women have heard this? Well, it would have been a he said, she said. <laughs> what are you going to do about a he said, she said for the when the when the stakes are a Supreme Court seat by a black Republican and you're a white senator, a Democrat? What are you going to do about dumping a black guy? Right. Ted Kennedy, I can't do that. This is ugly stuff. Keep it in the family. We're going to move on. Uh, see you later. And that's how it went down. That's remarkable. And this sort of theme of illegitimacy, I mean, in some ways it's throughout his life. You know, people on the left certainly view him as, as illegitimate. They, people on the right don't, don't feel that way. But what has cast, uh, raised enormous questions about his legitimacy, if you will, now are all these ethical questions that have come out uh, in part as a result of reporting by ProPublica. And you get very much into that, where he is, without reporting it on financial disclosure forms, he's taken dozens of, quote-unquote, destination trips, meaning fancy luxury vacations that he actually could not afford. He's enjoyed the patronage, one might say, of very wealthy white people, most notably Harlan Crow, the real estate developer, but also the late Wayne Hazinga, who had founded Waste Management and was a co-founder of Blockbuster. And uh, certainly that intersects, coming back to Ginny Thomas, where he, Justice Thomas, has declined to recuse himself from some of the cases that arose out of the dispute over the 2020 election, why is that significant? Well, of course, his wife is a, not simply someone on the right who very forcefully argued that this, you know, the, the election was stolen. In other words, she's in the in the Trump camp very much. But not only that, she's using her access to send text messages to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff under Trump. Uh, so this is an activist who's, who does not hesitate to use what influence she has to try to change the outcome of the election in this case, and yet Justice Thomas does not recuse himself. Would Would Jenny Thomas have that kind of access if she wasn't married to, to Clarence Thomas? I mean, it's a. I mean, I think Jenny Thomas is a smart woman, a committed conservative, understands how to work a crowd. Certainly been there for all of the after the the stop the steal stuff. It, you and you and your husband have to make a fundamental decision, especially in an incredibly divided country like America. The democracy is hanging on by its the hair of its chinny chin chins and uh and you're and you're married to a Supreme Court justice. Maybe you'd want to talk about uh Clarence should I should I be doing this? That Joe Biden's family should be arrested if, if the Supreme Court justice's wife believes that that's that's worth having out in the open and letting people decide is that something that should or shouldn't be happening. I think the rule is generally speaking you recuse yourself. If a case that has a, that looks like a conflict of interest is coming your way, but uh, he has he has he has not he has decided not to do that. Right now, they don't seem to be doing very much about it, but they're very quiet. They they may be cooking up new rules inside the court. I'm, I'm not sure. It, it is such a fascinating story, and I have to say that I've never seen a story like this laid out in a way that it, as I said, you don't exonerate, you don't indict. 
Um, you don't pass judgments. You let people who are there speak in their own voices. And as I said, I think the, the highest compliment I can give is that people on the right and the left are going to be equally confounded by your work. You know, why didn't you take him to the shed? Why, why are you doing this? I'm, I'm telling you, it was Don Hewitt who said way back in the day, about 60 minutes, hey, we, we aggravate people on both sides, so we're doing something right. Title of the film, Clarence and Ginny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court. It's a frontline documentary. You can catch it, uh, I believe, online for free. Yeah, you stream it on YouTube. It, it came out in May, but I got so many incoming calls from people, and they said, John, you have to see this film. Mm. You have to see this film. You have to see this film. You've been producing Frontline and, and doing these docs forever. By the way, you, you co-wrote, co-produced, and directed this film. So you were all over it. I think a lot of times people go, yeah, Frontline's good, but it, you know, it, it, it's news pieces. It's news pieces. This is a documentary film. It is a film, as powerful as any film you can see. I highly recommend to anybody, whoever you are, if you have any interest in politics, race in America, power dynamics among couples, seeing people that you think, you know, again, even John Bolton, who I walk away with going, okay, I still don't understand. <laughs> As a person of color, what I appreciate is I walk away going somebody, and I, and I, I say this with respect, I, you know, a lot of times there are questions about, well, who should tell a story? Well, if you're going to tell Clarence Thomas, it's got to be a black guy who tells the story, it, it, whatever. Anybody can tell a story if they're willing to go there and build a space where people with lived experiences can say what they want to say unfettered. I, I, there's no way I could have told this story better. Mm. None. Thank you. There is Thank no you, way. Differently, maybe, not better. And, and, and people need to see this documentary. And, and, and I'm, I'm so thankful, and particularly thankful to you, Matt, as a partner, because this is twice in a row where I was just so fired up about about what was going on and just every every step of the way it's like amen i'm there i'm with you i heard that i literally heard uh and i i don't want to get into it now but just people say well you know you got there because of affirmative action or understanding i got rejection letters i hold on to understanding you know from clarence thomas's point of view if you want to be on the supreme court i was going to win an oscar i don't want to hear anything else and what you had to do to get there i hope my journey was maybe more pro-positive in some ways but i understand what he went through thank you for this documentary. Thank you. Thank you. That means a tremendous amount to me. And I have 16 Emmys and 44 others. And you know what? That, what you just said, my friend, is uh, makes it worth it to me. Um, if it wasn't earned before by all your work, my God, this is this is one for the ages um, and, and, and really powerful and emotional and beautiful and scary and all of that. So um, I'm quite the job. Congratulations. Thank you. John, it's remarkable the work that Michael Kirk has done over the course of many decades for Frontline and really elucidating some of the most complex and important political, social issues facing our country. So we're so glad we had him on the show. But I wanted to ask you a little surprise question here of who your favorite Supreme Court justice is of all time. Uh, I I would say certainly the 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 individual that I admire most, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Um, mm. But the thing, you know, if I, I talk about things that I, I appreciate or, or favorites, um, I really enjoy doing this, this doc series. And I really, I look at my life and I look at the places where I 
could have been more rigorous in, in, in some ways or places where I really think I put in the work and studied. I, I always appreciated history. But the things that I've learned, the things that I continue to learn, um, things that I thought I knew about Thurgood Marshall, but uh, you watched Don Porter's documentary, you watched the one that we saw this week on Clarence Thomas, um, someone who we think we know. And however we may feel about him or his wife, um, the things that we still need to understand about him or anyone to have any kind of an opinion, it's just absolutely remarkable. So that I really do appreciate, Matt, just being with you here every week and and getting that knowledge and and continuing to be intellectually curiosity. And I'm so appreciative for all these documentary filmmakers for feeding, going out there and feeding that curiosity for us. Yes, I think that is really... One of the essential roles that documentary filmmakers traditionally have played and continue to play, uh, you know, sometimes their films are are just reaching us emotionally or they're both emotional and informative. So it's exciting, the sort of broad palette that they're working on. But uh, certainly in this episode, we've got an investigative documentary filmmaker and Michael Kirk doing really exceptional work about Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas. And next week, we're going to have another fantastic documentary filmmaker with us, someone who, as you have phrased it so eloquently, John, is changing the world one documentary at a time. And look forward to that conversation next week right here on Doc Talk. Mm-hmm.